Now, probably all of us, if we were to talk about our marriages and our spouses, we would all have issues. Things our spouse does, we don't understand. Take Kelly, for instance. She's not here. I can say what I want, and if I want her to know what I've said, I'll tell her. You guys all feel free to keep it to yourself. But if we decide we're going to clean the house and do a deep clean, guess where Kelly starts? Kitchen? Living room? Bathroom? No, it's in the girl's closet. The girl's closet. She, She organizes it. Right? I mean, the closet, no one sees. The, the closet, I don't know if the girls have ever really fully gotten into or not. I mean, the, the closet that, that no one who's ever been to our house has seen the inside of that closet. But that's where she starts. She wants to organize it. Not, not with the kitchen that everybody sees, or the living room that everybody sees, or the bathroom everybody's going to use if they come over. The closet. Who organizes a closet? I mean, honestly. Anybody organize their closets? Weirdos? I mean, and if you do or organize your closet, I mean, surely you don't do it first, right? I mean, organizing your closet is one of those things you do after everything else is done. You've cleaned the house, the parts people see, the lawn's mowed, there's nothing good on TV, there's nothing good to eat, there's nothing else to do, so you might as well go organize your closet. But not Kelly. That's first. And if she can't start there, she may not just start at all. And I, I don't understand that. Been married 20 something years, and I have absolutely no, it makes no sense to me. It still doesn't. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I did tell Kelly I was going to say this. She wanted me to let you know she doesn't understand why I can't close cabinet doors all the way, or why I can't push drawers closed, or why I can't get my shoes in the closet the way they ought to go. Now, I have perfectly reasonable explanations for those things, but. Kelly said, if I don't give her reasons, I'm not allowed to give my reasons. So fine, whatever. We'll just end with she doesn't understand me either. But I'm sure we all have issues like that in our marriages. People, even people we see and love, can be difficult to understand. Now, since this is true with people we see, people we love, how much more true will it be with a God we cannot see, we know through faith, And we know through the reading of Scripture and our experience with Him. You know, the old saying is, God works in mysterious ways. And while the exact wording is not found in Scripture, the idea surely is. God does not always do what we would expect Him to do. God does not always do the way we would expect Him to do. And when God, we talk about moving forward, following Jesus, God is not going to lead us forward in the way we always think He should, in the way that will make the most sense to us. Joshua finds himself in a situation as this today, as he moves forward following God. Look at verse 1, Joshua 6. Now Jericho was straightly shut up, Because the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. So, that's the situation. A walled city, and they're supposed to take it, but it's walled up, the gates are shut, nobody's going in, nobody's coming out. The first thing an army has to do is, how do we breach the walls? How do we get in there to take this city? This is the question Joshua has need of. 
And so the Lord answers him. The Lord said unto Joshua, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. So it's theirs. I have. Not I will. I have. It's already yours. Remember what we were told in chapter 1, everywhere the foot of your, the soles of your foot shall tread as land I have given you. I have given it to you. All you need to do is go take it. Yes, that's the answer. That's what we want to hear. How am I supposed to go take it? And you shall come past the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. So here's step one of God's strategy. Get all your men of war and walk around the city once and then come back to camp. And you do this for six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark, the trump, the ark, seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall come past the city seven times and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. So now the men of war walk around once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, the men of war and the priests and the ark and the trumpets are going to march around it seven times on the seventh day. And then after the seventh time, they are to blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast of the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the walls of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall ascend every man straight up before him. So they're looking at a walled city. Nobody's going in. Nobody's going out. This is a well-established, well-built city. Joshua needs a plan. How do you do it? God's plan. Get the men of war and walk around it once a day for six days. Seventh day, get the men of war, the priests, and the ram's horn. Walk around it seven times. On the seventh time, you blow horns. And everybody will yell at the walls. And that's the plan. I mean, this is not sound military strategy. In fact, this would be the opposite of sound military strategy. When you're talking about an infantry unit, which is essentially what they are, trying to take a walled city, there are, there are one of two ways you go about this. You go about it with stealth. right? You try to sneak in and, and attack them from the inside. Or you go about it with shock and awe. Something big to break down a wall, to break down a door. You, you run and you ram it and you, you shock them and you put them in awe of you so that they almost give. Well, this is neither. Now, we know the end of the story. We have a benefit they don't have. But imagine you're Joshua. You, as we saw last week in the chapter, you're seeking God. How do we take this city? God said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to walk around it. And you're going to yell at the walls. Boom, there's your plan. Now, this isn't just like God saying, this is what you do, Red, to move forward. You've got to get all these, all these warriors. Warriors, right? Not just random hobos. Warriors. And you've got to tell these warriors the battle plan is to walk around the walls and yell at them. How do you feel at this moment? Trying to explain... I talked to God, and this is what God said we're going to do. Now, had they ever walked around walls and yelled at them before? They had fought battles. They had fought big battles, long battles. They had taken cities before. Had they ever walked around walls and yelled at them before? No, this was brand new. It wasn't sound military strategy. They had, I mean, there's just no way you would look at this and say, this is exactly. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. 
I was thinking we ought to walk around the walls and yell at them. That's, that's what, that was my plan. Glad you thought of that, God. What do you do when that's God's plan? What do you do? Or what happens when God's way for, for us to move forward? Following Jesus, it doesn't make sense to us. I mean, what do we do when God says, this is how I want you to move forward following Jesus? And in our natural minds, it doesn't make any more sense than walking around a wall and yelling at it. What do we do? Now, this is a real question. A real question we have to answer. And a real question we have to expect because God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's smarter than we are. God sees more than we do. God knows more than we know. And so, since that's the case, there are going to be times in which God says, this is what it means for you to move forward following Jesus. And in that time, in our minds, it is not going to make any sense. What do we do in that moment? See, we have to know. Because it will happen. Kelly and I have experienced this in our lives. When, when God called me to preach, I'm going to, I mean, I've pastored here for 18 years, preached the whole time. But you don't know what I was like when God called me to preach. Public speaking was not my forte. I wasn't going to college to preach. I wasn't going to Bible college at all. I was going to college to build computer networks. I had one speech class in all of my time at college. And I threw up before every speech I gave. I was terrified of public speaking. When I first began to think, God may be calling me to preach. This is, this is not an exaggeration. I promise you this is not. I would think about it. And so I would, I would try to imagine myself at the front of the Fort Gibson Free Will Baptist Church, behind the pulpit, teaching. And just visualizing that would make my stomach churn. If I, I could not think about it for too long because it made me, I mean, this wasn't like, I'm not making this up, it was physically, it caused physical problems if I thought about it for too long. And I talked to one of the deacons there and I said, I think God may be calling me to preach, but I just can't imagine that. And he said, why don't you preach two Wednesday nights from now? The best way to find out is just get up and do it. You'll figure it out while you're up there. Okay. I couldn't eat for like a day and a half prior to preaching. I fasted, but it wasn't spiritual. If I ate, I threw up. And I mean, literally, I, I truly, actually vomited. And for the first year and a half, I was preaching. I vomited all night and all morning before I preached. God calling me to preach did not make any sense, but that's what He was calling me to do. Even when, when Kelly and I went to come out here, God called me to pastor and Kelly and I were looking and ready to go wherever God wanted us to go. And, and we were we actually looked for places around Muskogee. There's, it's not like Diamond where there's one Free Will Baptist Church. I mean, in Muskogee County, there's a whole bunch of Free Will Baptist Churches. So we looked around there. And God wanted us to come out here. But reality is that didn't make a lot of sense. Not on a natural level because Kelly and I both had really good jobs. Kelly's job paid her more than what I would make as the pastor here, what the church could afford to pay me. I had two jobs. I was a 
part-time youth pastor and a part-time help desk technician. And my two jobs paid me more than what the church could afford to pay me when we moved out here. When we moved out here, we took like a 60% cut in our income in order to, to move across the state. We left a church filled with people we loved and we had known forever. The youth I worked with, those were my best friend's kids. My mom and dad went to church with us. We saw my mom and dad almost every day. My mom babysat our girls for free. On a natural level, if you were to sit down and just plot it out on the natural, it made no sense for us to leave Muskogee and come to Guyman. But that was the way God was leading us to move forward following Jesus. But here's the deal. That's not just for me and Kelly. Because we're the pastor's family. God will absolutely at some point in your life. If you're trying to move forward following Jesus. The time will come. In which his leading of you will not make sense to you. God will lead us. We see this. God told him the plan. God will tell you the plan. He will show you how to move forward following Jesus. And sometimes it will be like, yes, that makes perfect sense. And other times, it will be like, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. That's coming. If we're serious about following Jesus. If we're serious about being His disciple. So the question is, how do we respond? When God's plans for us to move forward following Jesus do not make sense to us. Well, let's see what happens to Joshua. Look at verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priest, said of them, Take the ark of the covenant, let the seven priests bear the seven trumpets or ram's horns on the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city about. Pass the city. Let him that is armed pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken to the people, seven trump, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant and the Lord following him. And the armed men went before the priests that blew the trumpets and the rearward came after the ark and the priests going on and blowing the trumpets. Joshua, as and Joshua commanded the people saying, "You shall not shout nor make any noise." In your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you. Then you shall shout. So, so here's what happens. Joshua cries out, God, what do I do? God says, you don't walk around the city, you're going to yell at it. Joshua, in what seems to be absolutely no hesitation at all, it's like, okay. So he goes over to the priest. He's like, hey, here's the plan. Get those horns. You guys get the ark. You guys start walking. He walks over to the warriors. And he's like, hey, grab your weapons. Pick up. We're going to follow after them. We're going to walk around the city. How long? I'm just going to walk around at once today. And, and the people, the people did not even seem to hesitate. Right? I mean, they, they weren't like, wait, what? Really? Nope. It's like, oh, okay. That's how we're doing. I mean, there's like no hesitation in them. So it goes on. It says, so the ark of the Lord can pass the city going about at once. And they lodged and they came to the camp and they lodged in the camp. Joshua rose early in the morning. The priest took the ark of the Lord. Seven priests bearing the ark of the Lord went continually, blew the trumpets. The armed men went before them, and the rearward came after the ark. And the priests going on, blowing the trumpets on the second day. And they did it the second day, and the third day, and the fourth day, and the fifth day, and the sixth day. They, they just did exactly 
what God said to do. It didn't matter that it was unorthodox. It didn't matter they'd never done it before. It didn't matter that it really didn't even make sense because yelling at walls don't make them fall down. None of that mattered. Joshua had heard from God. They believed God. And so they obeyed God. They believed, and so they obeyed. You know, faith and obedience, they go together like an RC cola and a moon pie. You cannot separate one from the other without killing both. Without genuine obedience, actual acts of obedience, there is no faith, regardless of what kind of words we may say. I mean, again, just think about it from here. What if they said, we believe? Absolutely, if we walk around it once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, we yell at the walls, they're going to fall down, and then they did nothing. Would they have actually believed? No. What if they said, absolutely, if we walk around it once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, yell at the walls, are going to fall down, that's what's going to happen, and then they charged the walls and tried to batter down the front door. Did they actually believe God? No. The only way they could demonstrate they actually believed God. It was not with their words of affirmation. It was with their acts of obedience. That is always how faith is shown. Faith is shown in the lives we live and the actions we take because we believe. Think about Hebrews 11. The whole chapter is about people who receive God's approval because of their faith. But, how do we know they had faith? Well, it was by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It was by faith, Noah moved with fear and built an ark. It was by faith, Abraham left his homeland not knowing where he was going. It was by faith Abraham sojourned in the land of promise in tents as a stranger and a pilgrim there. It was by faith Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice at the command of God. It was by faith Isaac blessed Jacob. It was by faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It was by faith he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It was by faith Moses forsook Egypt. It was by faith others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, because they believed God had something better for them later on. You see the pattern? It was by faith they acted. By faith, they moved forward following God in the way God wanted them to go. This is the way it always goes. And, and the thing is, keep in mind, they did this even though much of what commanded didn't make sense. And we don't have time to look at all of them, but Noah moved with fear to build an ark. We've talked about it before, but from what we understand of the world at that time, it had never rained. There had never been a flood. Noah didn't even know what it meant two of every creature would fit on the boat. Nothing God told him to do made sense, but what did he do? He built an ark according to the command of God. 
How much sense does it make for God to tell you to take the child of promise you've waited 75 years, 25 years for and go and offer him as a sacrifice? It makes no sense. But what did he do? He, he went and he did it. And I honestly, I can't imagine that being tortured, not accepting deliverance makes any sense to anybody at any time. But that's what they did. Faith always produces obedience. Always. Genuine faith always produces acts of obedience. If we don't obey, it is always, always, always because we don't believe. If we truly believe, we obey. We do what God says. So what happens when we believe and we obey and we move forward following Jesus? Well, look at verse 16. It came to pass the seventh time the priest blew the trumpets. Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. This has nothing to really do with the message, but I like that. I like the enthusiasm, the excitement. I believe, I believe the shout they shouted was a real shout. Forty years of pent-up frustration. Forty years of walking in circles. Forty years of their lives consumed in futility. Forty years of waiting for this day. I believe they shouted the greatest, loudest shout they had ever shouted in their life. But sadly, I believe there isn't much enthusiasm or excitement about Jesus-y things. In our culture today. But moving on. Joshua says the city shall be accursed. Oh, shout for the Lord hath given you the city. It's restating what God said to him in verse 2. The city was theirs for the taking. Victory was assured. All they had to do was fight. Now they would have to put forth tremendous amount of effort in order to win. But... They would win. God had given them the city. Without that effort on top of their faith, there would have been no victory. There would have been no fulfillment of God's promises. Verse 17 and 18. The city shall be accursed, even it, with all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she had the messengers, and ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed. When you take the accursed thing, make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and the gold, the vessels, brass and iron are consecrated to the Lord, and they shall come to the treasury of the Lord. Now, the city and everyone in it was accursed. And they couldn't keep any of the spoil for themselves. The stuff they could keep, it was going to be dedicated to God, go to His temple. A lesson here is that when God is the one who moves us forward. God is the one who sets the rules about what we can do and what we can't do, what we can have and what we can't have. They had to destroy everything. They could not take any spoil for themselves. The only things they weren't to destroy, verse 19, were things that were consecrated to God. They would be put in the treasure of the Lord and they would be used in the service to the Lord. Now, it says in verse 18... That if they did not follow God's rules and they tried to keep for themselves anything God had said was accursed, they would make themselves accursed. Which is serious. We'll see how serious next week, but it's a serious thing. 
What is going to happen is there are serious consequences for not following God's rules. When God says, this is how you go forward, God sets the boundaries. And if we don't follow God's boundaries, there are consequences for it. For them, accursed, it basically meant devoted to God for destruction. That's a bad thought, right? That city and everything within it was devoted to God for destruction. And if they took anything out of that city, they themselves would be devoted to God for destruction. Now, devoted to God for destruction basically meant not only would God not fight for them, but God would actively fight against them until they were destroyed. If anyone would take something that God had said not to take, God would be their enemy fighting against them until every single person in Israel was destroyed. That is a serious consequence. That was the warning, but in verse 20, the priests shout, people shout, and they ran up into the city, and they took the city, they win. They, they utterly destroy all that's in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. But here's the deal. When they did what God said, they saw God did what He said. God said... If you walk around the city once a day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, and yell at the walls, they'll fall down. You can go in and find out getting into the city. God did exactly what He said He would do when they did exactly what God said He would do, what God said to do. That they didn't let not one jot or tittle of all that God said go undone. They didn't say, well, that part makes sense, but this part doesn't. They did exactly the way God said to do it, and God received the glory, and they won the victory. But this victory was only possible because they believed and they obeyed. When we believe Jesus and we obey Jesus, we get to witness Jesus work in us and through us and for us in powerful ways. One of my heroes of the faith is an evangelist from the 1800s named D.L. Moody. Moody was an uneducated shoe salesman who got saved, began preaching, and saw God do amazing things through him. Even though Moody died in 1899, had like a sixth grade education, his legacy lives on today in things like the Moody Church in Chicago, Moody Press, Moody Bible Institute. How could an uneducated shoe salesman have such an impact upon the world and leave a legacy that goes on 100 years later? Well, listen to what one of his peers said about this. The first thing that accounts for God using D.L. Moody so mightily was that he was a fully surrendered man. Every ounce of that 280-pound body belonged to God. Everything he was and everything he had belonged wholly to God. Now, I'm not saying Mr. Moody was perfect. He was not. If I attempted to, I presume I could point out some defects in his character. No, Mr. Moody was not a faultless man. But while I recognize such faults or such flaws, nevertheless, I know that he was a man who belonged wholly to God. There are thousands and ten thousands of men and women in Christian work, brilliant men and women, rarely gifted men and women, who make uh, men and women who are making great sacrifices, men and women who have put all conscious sin out of their lives, yet who nevertheless have stopped short of absolute surrender to God and therefore have stopped short of the fullness of power. But Mr. Moody did not stop short of absolute surrender to God. He was a man wholly surrendered to God. If you and I are to be used in our sphere as Moody was in his, that we must put all we have 
and all that we are in the hands of God for Him to use as He will, to send us wherever He will, for God to do with us what He will, and we on our part to do everything God bids us to do. Do we wish to see God work in us and through us and for us in mighty ways? Then we must be surrendered to God. Now, just kind of a brief preview of next week. If you know the story, you know that there is a man who didn't keep what Joshua said in verse 18. He was not wholly surrendered to God. And it was costly for him. Costly for his family. Costly for the nation. If we want to see God work in us and through us and for us, we must be wholly surrendered to God. Because whatever it is we say, God, I'll do anything but. We're not surrendered. And we are, God, we're not hindering God. God will just choose not to do what needs to be done. God will just choose not to work in us and through us and for us. And He will work through someone else to accomplish His will. I think of Esther. Esther, who was afraid to go before the king for she had not been summoned. And Mordecai saying to her, who knows if you've been brought in the kingdom for such a time as this. To deliver the nation. Now you, you can stop and you can save yourself. But know this, deliverance for Israel will rise from another. Right? What, what he was saying was, God isn't dependent upon you, Esther. God can do what He's going to do through somebody else. If you're not going to surrender to God and go do what God wants you to do, you'll die, you'll miss it, God will still do it. It's the same with us. God doesn't actually need us, but He wants to work in us and through us and for us to do things, to accomplish His will, to extend His kingdom, to bring glory to His name. But in order for God to work through us in that way, we have to surrender to Him. We have to believe Him enough to obey Him no matter what He's calling on us to do. But another question I want you to ask is, why? What is the purpose of God working in us and through us and for us? Well, look at verse 17. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Everybody in Jericho who is not in her house devoted to God for destruction and they were going to die. But Rahab had faith. She believed the Lord God of Israel was the one true God of heaven above and earth below. And so she hid the spies. She believed, she acted, and now she is being saved. This is a picture of God's heart for the lost. But the rest of the chapter deals with them going. Joshua sends two men to go into the Rahab's house to get, because apparently, from what I can gather, the walls fell down except for the part where Rahab's house was because it was hard pressed to the wall. So that part stood. He went in there, he got her and whoever else she brought in there and led them all out. Her and her family were all saved and they lived among Israel for the rest of their days. The salvation of others is always at the heart of everything God does in us and through us. And for us. And this is again a huge thing for us to understand because as Americans we are highly individualistic. And as individualistic people, we assume we're the point. But we're not. Not completely, anyway. A part of the everything Jesus does in us and through us and for us is for the salvation 
of others. We see this all throughout Scripture, even in the very beginning. Why did God work in Noah, in and through and for Noah, leading him forward? So he would build an ark for what purpose? For the saving of his family. Why did God work in and through and for Abraham? So he would be a blessing to every nation. Exactly how has Abraham been a blessing to every nation? Jesus. Jesus and the salvation He brought was the point of Abraham and the nation of Israel. Why did Jesus come? To seek and to save those who are lost. Why did Jesus go to Samaria? To save the woman at the well. Why did He save the woman at the well? So she could go get her entire town and bring them to Jesus and they could be saved. Why did Jesus choose the twelve? So they could go make disciples of all nations. Why did Jesus pour out the Holy Spirit on the church on the day of Pentecost? So they would be filled with the Spirit and would be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So in that light, why did Jesus save you? Why did Jesus give you a spiritual gift? Why has Jesus sanctified you? Why is Jesus calling you forward? If part of your answer to those questions is not some variation of so others could be saved. Then you do not understand why or how Jesus works in us and through us and for us. If the end point was our salvation full stop, why are we still here? Why not save us and take us home like Enoch immediately? Why save us and leave us? Why give us a spiritual gift if the point isn't for us to minister it to others so they can be saved? Why sanctify us if it's not so that we can be a light and shine and be different than the world around us so people would be drawn to Jesus? Why call us forward if it's not to give us new opportunities and new influence with people that need Jesus? Make no mistake, everything He has done in you and through you and for you up to this point and continues to do is so others can be saved. You and I are not the full stop end point of God's work, not even in our lives. There are people beyond us who need Jesus and God is calling us forward, working in our lives, saving us, sanctifying us, gifting us so we can do what we can and reach them. Make no mistake, we are not faithful to Jesus if we are not actively working to seek and to save those who are lost. God's desire is that at the end of time, all the redeemed of Christ would gather around His throne And it would be people from every language and tribe and nation and people on the earth. So many ways you and I are here for such a time as this to reach the people that I just mentioned. To reach those on on the, the unreached list. To help the missionaries to go. We're here in part for God to work through us and in us and for us to save the lost. So what happens? What do we do when God's way for us to move forward doesn't make any sense to us? Well, if we move forward in faith-fueled obedience, we find it's the path to victory for us and salvation for others. Moving forward in faith-fueled obedience 
is the path to victory for us and the path to salvation for others. It's both. God is leading you forward following Jesus. This is a, I mean, this is guaranteed. I promise you. There is not a person in here who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. God is not calling you forward in some way to follow Jesus. That requires faith-filled obedience on your part. And as you look at your life, does it testify of faith-fueled obedience? Does it testify of that willingness to look silly if God doesn't come through? I know we're out of time. Joshua is a general trying to take an entire land. In his first battle, he leads people to walk around it and he yells at the walls. How stupid does Joshua look if the walls don't fall down? How is any nation, any city, going to fear the armies of Israel if they walk around cities and yell at the walls and nothing happens? Faith-fueled obedience is willing to look stupid if God does not come through. It is a willingness to step out and do what God would have us to do, knowing if God doesn't come through, we are probably going to look dumb. So do you look at your life, do you see faith-fueled obedience, that willingness to risk for the glory and the sake of God? This is where victory in the Christian life is found. For many who struggle, and and do not experience victory in their life, the reason for the lack of victory is the lack of faith-filled obedience. That unwillingness to move out and trust God. Just over the hill may be your victory, but you have to move forward to get there. In the same way, moving forward in faith-filled obedience is the path to the salvation of others. There may well be people in your life you long to see come to Christ and live for Him. And their salvation is just over the hill of your faith-fueled obedience. Make no mistake, God desires to see them saved more than we desire to see them saved. God wants us to move forward in faith-fueled obedience so that He can work through us to save the lost, to restore the prodigal, to open spiritually blind eyes, to heal broken hearts, to raise the spiritually dead to new life in Christ. What is the first act of faith-fueled obedience you need to take in order to move forward following Jesus today? There's something for all of us. For some it may be repenting of your sins and believing upon Jesus Christ for the very first time. Truly surrendering your life to Him, calling upon Him and saying, Jesus, save me today. For others, it may be going to Jesus and saying, I have strayed. I have gone astray. Forgive me. Restore me. And for others, there's probably any number of other things. But if we seek the Lord like Joshua did, the Lord will show us that step forward we need to take. And at that point, it's on us. Do we have the faith to move forward following Jesus? Will we move forward in faith-filled obedience and experience victory in our lives and see the salvation of others as God worked in us, through us, and for us? Let's pray. Holy Father, we love you today.